I'll use Romans chapter 10 as a jump off point here. So if you want to open your Bibles there, that'll be great. As I was growing up, something I heard often from my mother was this. Where did you get that? I don't think my mom understood how much time and effort it took to find and bring home neat stuff. I mean, you could find neat stuff to hang on to anywhere. Uh, a rusty piece of metal. Man, that's cool. Uh, that'd be great right on my dresser, you know. And so I would bring things like that home. I could remember a time when uh, I, I saw some workmen patching up brick and mortar on a building, and they were using uh, putty, like window putty, to fill up the cracks. And as they're working around this large building, I noticed, a very observant child, of course, I noticed that they were dropping blobs of putty on the ground. And so I thought, well, that looks neat. So I started picking up around where the workmen were working blobs of putty all the way around this big building where they're working. And guys, I ended up with a ball of putty this big. How cool is that? In fact, one of the workmen said, please don't show that to our boss. But I thought, how cool. And of course, I had to take that home. You can't leave something out like that just there. And I can think of another time my brother and I were, were noticing hot roofing tar that was melting off of a roof and dripping onto the sidewalk. And, and we looked at it, and it was kind of coagulating there on the sidewalk, and it wasn't, you know, once it landed and started cooling off, it was still in that molten form. And we discovered with a pocket knife, if you're careful, you could peel up some of that roofing tar, and it made really good gum. Oh, it was so cool. It didn't quite taste like licorice, but it was, it was cool. And so I'm, we're, we're chewing roofing tar. We noticed it made our teeth really white. How cool was that? But for some reason, my mom didn't like that when we brought it home with us. Uh, I, I love to go. We, we lived on a university campus for several years. And when I was a young child, we lived in the men's dormitory. First floor was reserved for faculty. And we lived on that floor. And I discovered that often the trash chute, where the trash men pick up the garbage, uh, they didn't always lock the door. <laughs> A gold mine. Because I could, I could open up that door and the trash from three floors in the dormitory came to one spot. And you wouldn't believe the neat stuff those guys would throw away. It was so cool. And then there's the, the animal kingdom. Man, we, we love to bring home praying mantises or, or lizards. They were fun. And, yeah, snakes. I don't know why my mom didn't care for that. But we'd bring snakes home. And I've already told you about bringing home a quart jar of toads, right? I've told you that before. But, but we didn't bring that home when she was there because we knew what she would say. Um, we found a nest full of baby birds one time that was out of a tree. So we thought that'd be a good thing to bring home. Maybe we can help the baby birds out. Um, sometimes you just get really lucky. And somebody would just give you something, a nice piece of junk that didn't, wasn't good for anything, but they'd just give it to you. and You'd have something to take home with you. 
But every time my mom would ask the same question, where did you get that? And usually, almost everything we found, she, she came back with this after we told her where. She said, well, go take it back. <laughs> she didn't want us to have it at home. Well, let me ask you the question this morning. Where did you get that? Where did you get that Bible that's sitting on your lap this morning? Now, now I'm not talking about the store where you may have bought it, or it could have been a gift from someone. I'm not talking about that, but where did it come from? Where did you get that Bible? I think oftentimes we as believers don't understand what we have, the, the treasure we have in this book and what it took to get it from there to here. Because oftentimes we don't understand where there is. So this morning, let's talk about that. We'll take a few moments and talk about where did our Bible come from? How did we get our Bible? A wise man long ago used to say this, you can borrow brains, but you can't borrow character. So this morning, I want to borrow some brains. I'm going to borrow for my outline uh, a chart that Dr. Ryrie wrote and put in his Bible, Basic Theology. So the points of my outline, I must say, are Dr. Ryrie's. I'll put the filling in. Okay, but the basic notes about where our Bible came from, I'm borrowing from his notes this morning. I appreciate his scholarship and, and what he has written there. Now, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to share your word, to think about your word and where it came from. Lord, I pray that you would open up our thoughts, open up our hearts, that we might understand your great love for man and why you have done what you have done in giving us your word. So Father, I pray this morning that you would just work through your word in our hearts, that Father, we might be a people that love this book. So Lord, thank you now for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter, seven, uh, chapter 10, I asked Pastor Jared if he would read especially two verses this morning. The verse, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. What a glorious, wonderful verse that is. And, and then we read that last verse, verse 17 together. So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Folks, do you realize when you read, read those verses, there's a process, something had to happen in order for us to be able to understand God's simple plan of salvation. It didn't just happen. But things had to transpire in order to make God's Word available for us so that we can understand it and we can have it. So it all started here this, uh, as we think this morning. It started with thoughts in God's mind. That's where it all started. Perhaps you have never thought about God being a thinker, but He's the ultimate thinker. He thinks about many things. In fact, here's what His Word tells us about that. In Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of His heart to every generation. Folks, the Word of God, the thoughts of God are eternal. And in Psalm 40, in verse 5, it says this, Many, O Lord my God, are Thy wonderful works which Thou hast done, and Thy thoughts which are to us word. In other words, God not only thinks, but He thinks about His children. What a great thought that is. 
Isaiah chapter 55, here's what he says. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And then listen, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways, are my ways, your ways are not my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Folks, God's thoughts are so above us and beyond us. It's incredible. Jeremiah said this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace. Hey, folks, how many times have you heard someone talk about the God of the Old Testament is an angry God? But wait a minute. How does he think about his children? With thoughts of peace. Hey, do you understand though? Sinful man is different. In fact, Micah said this about sinful man. He said this, but they know not the thoughts of the Lord. Neither understand they his counsel. How sad. Lost man cannot understand God's thoughts. Now think about this. How is it possible for us as human beings, mere humans, to know and understand God's thoughts unless God was willing to share them with us? Of course, he had to because he wanted to. He wanted to let us know what he thought. And so we have his word. So God's thoughts are, uh, uh, God has thoughts in his mind. And because he does that, he wants to give them to us. So God spoke. And that speaking of God about himself is called revelation. I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. I'm talking about God revealing himself to us. He's telling us something about himself. That word revelation simply defined means God's self-disclosure. He's telling us something about himself or about what he is doing or about what he has done. You see, folks, God loves us and he shared his thoughts with us, with man. How did he do that? How did God share his thoughts with human beings? Well, there's four basic ways the Word of God talks about Him sharing how He has shared His truth with us. The first simply is this, that God revealed Himself to mankind through man's conscience. That's right. Every person is born with a conscience. Now, I'm not talking Jiminy Cricket style from Walt Disney. I'm talking about a conscience. All of us have that God-spaced vacuum in our heart and a conscience that pricks us from time to time. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 said this, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. Folks, God has given to all men the truth that He exists. All men know there is a God because God has put it in their heart. But there's a second way that God has revealed Himself to man. And that is this, through nature. We call that general revelation. Uh, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, the things you observe in nature tell us about God. In fact, verse 20 of Romans 1 says this. Listen carefully. 
For the invisible things of him, God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Question, how do you see invisible things? The invisible things about God can be seen. How can we see those things? And then he goes on, being understood by the things that are made. You look at nature and you know that God exists. You, you watch the birds fly. You watch the, the, the fish swim. You, you watch the clouds roll over. You watch the rain He gives us. You, you listen to the thunderstorm. All of these things tell us there is a God and this God is very powerful. You see, folks, God reveals Himself to man in nature. But then there's another way that God reveals Himself to man, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our best way to know God. This is special revelation through Him. Jesus is the living Word. We're talking today about receiving the written Word, but Jesus is the living Word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says this about Jesus. Who is the image? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Oh, that makes sense. He is the firstborn of every creature. So the Son is the image of His Father. How many times have you heard someone looking at a baby say, hey, he's the spitting image of his dad? Hey folks, guess what? Jesus is the image of His Father. Verse 19 of the same chapter says this, For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. Okay, what's this fullness He's talking about? Well, He explains it to us over in chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians when He says this, For in Him, in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It means this, that if you want to know what God the Father who is invisible is like, because we are humans, we can't see the invisible. If you want to know what the Father is like, take a very long, deep look at the Son, Jesus Christ. And you can learn about the Father by taking a look at Jesus. I like what the writer of Hebrews said about this, and Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past to us by the, uh, to the fathers by the prophets. In verse 2, it says this, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Hey folks, listen. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And the whole reason Jesus came is to show us what the Father is like. There's a fourth way that we see God revealed, and that is God reveals Himself to mankind, of course, through His Word. Through His Word. We understand that. Special revelation again. Listen to Isaiah, what Isaiah the prophet had to say about that. Chapter 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is none else. I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Hey, he knows everything from the beginning to the end of time. He knows it all. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. 
saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And then he finishes out the paragraph with this. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Folks, do you understand? God speaks to us through his word. We read the word of God so we can understand the end from the beginning. We can understand what we need for everyday life because God has put it into his word for us. Well, it started with the thoughts being in the mind of God and God is the kind of God he wants us to understand him so he has revealed himself to us. That's revelation. But then the next step was this. God put his thoughts into the minds of the authors, those who actually ended up writing it. God put his minds into their minds. God spoke to and through human authors of the Bible. Peter says it this way, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in time of time in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that thought in a moment. But think about this. God put his thoughts in men's minds. We could say it this way. God breathed his thoughts into man's mind. God inspired his word. God spoke it. God breathed it, which is what the word inspiration means. God breathed out his word. He spoke his word to men. Job 32 verse 8 says this, But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And you know the verse from 2 Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Folks, do you understand? God has breathed out this book. The words we have, the words we read, they are inspired by God. He put His thoughts into man's mind. He inspired His Word. What a great thought. Why would he do that? The reason God inspired his word is so that man can have the authoritative truth about God. Here it is. We go to the word of God to find out truth about God. It's the only way we can learn that kind of truth is by going to the word. Think about this. What if I said this? Show me a preacher who doesn't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. And I'll show you a false teacher who will, wants to dominate your thinking. How will he do that? Well, he'll say something like this. Well, whatever is, you know, whatever uh, strikes the spark in you, that's inspired. Or he'll say this. Well, since we can't know what's inspired, I'll tell you what's inspired. I know, folks, listen. The Word of God is inspired. As Pastor says from Genesis to the maps, It is the Word of God. Every word is inspired. Every word is equally inspired. Very important thought for us. So God gave the human authors the thoughts in their mind. He allowed them to write. God inspired His Word. He put His thoughts in the human authors' minds, and they wrote it down. Now get this. 
Even though they wrote it down, they each had their personality come through loud and clear in the different books. Isn't that amazing? How did that happen? We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay? But you can see the personality of everyone there in the Scriptures as they write. Well, the next step is simply this. When they wrote, there were original manuscripts. So they've written down what God has put into their minds. So that they write down these manuscripts. And there's an important word that we need that we learn in theology called canonicity. Canonicity. I know it's a big word and it's an English word. My apologies, okay? But we can understand it doesn't have anything to do with the canon like you shoot. All right? It comes from the Greek word canon, which means something to measure with. Something that you measure with. A measuring instrument. And this word canon is used several times in the New Testament. But listen to this time because it will help us to understand. Because that canon is a rule or a standard or a measurement. Listen carefully to Philippians 3.16. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, the same canon. Let us mind the same thing. In other words, hey, as believers in Christ, we do and think and, and go about the same way. Why? Because we all have the same standard. And that standard, that measuring rod, is the Word of God. Now, in theology, that word canon has a couple of meanings. Let me share them with you because I think they're important. One is a list of books that have met and passed certain rules or tests that are considered to be authoritative and canonical. All right, we get that. Let's break it down a little bit more. Here's a second thought. The canon is a collection of books that become our rule for life. So what we have here, we would call the canon of Scripture. This becomes our measurement, our standard, our rule for life. Now, let me share a quote with you from Dr. Merrill Unger. He says this, Those books that were measured by the standard or test of divine inspiration and authority. In other words, if they were inspired, they were a part of the canon. So they are testing for divine inspiration and authority and were adjudged to be God-breathed. The books we have here in the Scriptures, every one of them are God-breathed. And they were included in the canon. The term thus came to be applied to the catalog or list of sacred books, thus designated and honored as normative and sacred and binding. Folks, here's our standard. We have the Scripture here. Now let me take one step back here. I've thrown that term canon to you, and you might still be juggling with that. But let me make it a little simple, okay? I'm a simple kind of guy. I do well with K-5 students, all right? So, so let me back down just a little bit here, all right? Can I say this? God decided what books He wanted in His Bible. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense to me. This God who revealed Himself, who inspired His, his thoughts to, to men so they could write it down. God decided which books He wanted in His Word. We got that. We can understand that. So God's canon is the rule by which everything else is going to be judged. All right, you with me here? Now note, the words I use, God decided. I'm going to come back to that thought because that's really important. So the books of the canon, we would say, are self-authenticating. Ah, 
I hate to throw around big words like that. Let's, let's keep going here. This means that because God inspired them, God breathed them out, they were a part of the canon as He inspired them. So get this, this is all we're saying, that when God spoke it, He breathed it out, it became a part of His canon because He inspired it right then. It is part of His Word. In other words, even before man discovered... Now, that's the key word for man. What did God do? God decided what He wants in His canon. What did man have to do? Man had to discover which books God wanted specifically in His canon. In other words, even before man discovered their canonicity, they were already a part of God's Word. Why? Because God breathed them. So obviously, God knew what was in the canon before man did. No question about that. Dr. Ryrie says this, It was not necessary to wait until various councils could examine the books to determine if they were acceptable or not. Their canonicity was inherent within them since they came from God. They are His books. Of course they're part of the Bible. Because these books have been given to us by God. So God has inspired His Word. Every portion of the Scriptures is a part of His canon. All right? Now, move on. Let me give you another thought here. So we have original manuscripts that become part of the canon, but there was a way that that happened, and that is the collection of the 66 books. How did those 66 books get together? Good question. All right, now let me say this before we go there. God has preserved His Word, folks. The Old Testament took almost a thousand years to write those 39 books. In the New Testament, it took nearly 50 years to write the 27 books that are in the New Testament. And God protected His Word through all of the times of the writings of these books. Listen to Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Here's what Isaiah says. You'll appreciate the first verse. As the rain cometh down. Seen rain lately? Okay. But anyway, as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So just like that, verse 11 so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Folks, God took care to see that His word was preserved, protected, and used, and nothing returns to Him void or empty or worthless, or not having done what He sent it out to do. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Here's how Jeremiah says it. Is not my word as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh a rock in pieces? It's always there. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, you know. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but... My word shall not pass away, ever. So God preserved His word as it was being written. Uh, The Holy Spirit took special care with the writers. God carried the human authors along so the word was written 
just as God wanted it to be written. What a thought. Peter says it this way. I've read two of the verses. Let me add a third verse here. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We, we can count on what is written here. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as a light shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Hey, get this. Peter is saying, even while he's struggling to write through Scripture, and he's writing Scripture down, get this. The commentator says this. Even in Peter's day, enemies of Jesus were twisting the prophecies, giving them personal and bizarre meanings so as to exclude Jesus from their fulfillment. But Peter says that prophecy is not of any private interpretation but its meaning is evident and can be confirmed by others. Hey folks, isn't that great? I can't make the Scripture say what I want it to. You can't make the Scripture say what you want it to. But we come back to it time and time again and we see what the Scripture says and it always says the same thing. Isn't that great? But then that that next verse, let me share with you from Peter. For the prophecy came and not in old time of the will of man. It wasn't... The guys didn't get together and say, hey, let's write a Bible. No, it wasn't their idea, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write. That word moved is neat in in the Greek language. It's pheromenoi, and here's what it means. To, To carry them along just like the wind fills the sails in a sailing ship, and the wind carries that ship along. Hey folks, the Holy Spirit carried along these men as they wrote. They didn't choose to write themselves. God told them to write. And the Holy Spirit was there to help them write exactly what God wanted them to say. What a thought. So God preserved His Word, folks. And get this, He preserved His Word through what we call textual criticism. Textual criticism. Textual criticism is is the science of studying the ancient manuscripts to determine the authentic text of the Bible. Which one should we accept and which one's not? Everything that's old isn't in the Bible. And there's a lot of Hebrew books that are not in the Bible, a lot of Greek writings that are not in the Bible. How did they determine? That's textual criticism that the Holy Spirit helped them through. Remember, God already understood it. Man had to discover it. He had to see it. God preserved His text through all of that. And let me ask you this this morning. If every copy of God's Word were somehow taken away from the earth tomorrow morning, you wake up and you put your Bible in a normal place and you go to get your Bible to read tomorrow morning and it's gone. If that were to happen, listen carefully, has God's Word been destroyed? I can feel eyes looking at me. I can't hear anything. That's okay. Hey, folks, no. God's Word cannot be destroyed. Why? Because it is God's. It is eternal. As long as God is there, His Word is there. You cannot destroy the Word of God. It is eternal. Think about this. Years ago, I read this poem about the anvil of God's Word. Listen carefully to what the writer says. I think it... It matches the point very well. Last evening, I paused beside the blacksmith's door 
and heard the anvil ring, the vesper chime. Then I looked in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word for ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet through the noise of the falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammers are gone. Folks, you cannot destroy the word of God because it is eternal. Peter says it this way in another place, for all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as a flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord is forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Folks, it's eternal. It can never be done away with. So all the skeptics, all the critics out there can beat on it with their hammers. But their hammers just get worn out because you cannot destroy God's word. God has preserved his word. So what do we have? We have a collection of 66 books. Okay? But then we needed something else. We needed modern Greek and modern Hebrew Bibles. I can't take the time this morning to explain why, but we had to have the old texts updated so that man could read them well. Right? And God chose the languages to use in transmitting His Word. The Old Testament, you know, is Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. And so translation was needed from those ancient languages to be able to put those words into modern language. Translation is a big word here. Translation, you know that because we all speak different languages, right? Translation is the process of translating words or text from one language into another language. We get that. We understand that. But along with translation, there's another important word here, and it's the word, the word transmission. How did we have God's word from so long ago? Think about this. The man wrote down the original copies, but over time, what happens to that? Listen, they're writing on grass, on papyrus. Uh, they're writing sometimes on wood. Sometimes they're writing on a, another form of paper. Some are written in parchment. But for the most part, the writing materials they used really de decay very, very quickly. So those original manuscripts had to be copied for the next generation and the next and the next and the next in order for them, uh, in order for us to have one. They had to be translated. Now understand, folks, uh, this translation that they did, this writing, was, was very strictly uh, enforced, especially by the Talmudic Jews. Listen to this. The Talmudic Jews had 17 steps. If you were going to copy the Word of God, here are 17 steps you had to go through in order to be allowed to copy the Scriptures. Wow. Josh McDowell 
throws a quote in his book. He says this, As to their accuracy, the copies they're making, the Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. With their Mazora, the Parva, Magna, and Finalis, they kept tabs on every letter, every letter, every syllable, every word, every paragraph. They knew exactly how many was in each book. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. They were called scribes and lawyers and Masoretes. Whoever counted the syllables in words of Plato or Aristotle, Cicero or Seneca, and of course the obvious answer is nobody's concerned about their words. They were ancient words. Folks, these ancient words were far more important because these ancient words were God's words. We believe that God protected His Word through time and through copyists and through translators, folks. God preserved His Word for us. Well, then what do we have now? We have modern English versions. By the way, uh, we come from many different lands here. So the Bible you have in your land fits exactly what I'm talking about with the English versions here. Now, before I get into that much, let me just say this. In order to see, two things have to be true. First off, you have to have eyes that work. And you you have to have light. Because you see, if you have eyes, but you do not have light, you can't see. And if you have light, but no eyes... You can't see. Both are necessary. We call the process of God sharing with us what the Scripture is saying, illumination. Turning the light on for us. So we have modern versions here. And let's talk about illumination here for just a moment. Illumination has to do with God enlightening the believer to understand His Word. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illumined. Oh yeah, after God turned the light on for you so you could understand His Word. You remember Psalm 119, 105. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Folks, we can read the Word every day forever and never understand it until God turns the light on for us until He illuminates it for us, illuminates it. Another thought that goes along with illumination is the idea of interpretation. It had to be interpreted. Interpretation involves certain rules that work in every language. We have to look at it a certain way. We can't understand God's Word from the ancient languages until we have it interpreted for us. And by the way, you can read it in English and still not be sure what you know. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch riding back to Ethiopia in his chariot? He has an Isaiah scroll on his lap and the preacher comes up beside the chariot and says, do you understand what you're reading? I mean, he's got God's Word right there opened in front of him. He's reading aloud to the people that are with him. And the preacher says this, do you understand what you're reading? And here was the man's thought. He said, how can I except some man should guide me? Hey folks, someone has to guide us to understand what the truth is. 
We need that. We need people's help. We need people who understand the Scriptures to help explain Scripture to us. That all happens with another form of interpretation, doesn't it? Where I understand what, what it's being written there. We call these rules the rules of hermeneutics, but that's for another time and another lesson. So what happens next? Okay, We have modern versions. We have illumination. And we're thankful for our modern versions we can read. We can see what God thought. But get this now. The thoughts of God come to our minds. Think about it. We started with the fact that God had some thoughts. And through this entire process, we see now that the thoughts that were there now can be here. I can think God's thoughts after him. We can read the word of God for ourselves. God thought, God's thoughts go into my mind. As we read, God's thoughts become our thoughts. Uh, that word reading is a great word. The Greek word is anagonosko. And just the root of that, gnosko means I know. But you put the prefix there, and it means this. I know. I learn through the process of reading. What a great word. Hey, folks, we, we learn the Word of God. How? As we sit down with it and we read it. So God will use the Word of God in us. He will help us to understand it. But we have to do one more thing. is We have to make an application of it. It's, there's a difference between me understanding it and then me doing it. You with me here? You see, God says, I want you to understand it, but that's not enough. Hey, folks, listen, you can come to church every Sunday, listen to a pastor preach, hear the word of God, understand what the word says, and yet it be of no value to you at all because you won't do what the scripture says. You see, application is that process of the reader putting into practice the truths and principles that we've learned from the scriptures. James said it this way, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, because if you're just a hearer, you're deceiving yourself. You're kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself. You're never going to be what God wants you to be. Why? Because you're just a hearer, not a doer. He wants us to be active with the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 17, David says, deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. And verse 57, same chapter. Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. And verse 101 says, I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep thy words. Folks, do you, do you see a similarity here? It's not just treasuring God's word to us, which we ought to do. But it's in the doing of his word. When God teaches you to do something, do it. Do what God's word says. So we have God's thoughts in our minds now. And it's up to us to make application of the word. When we make application of the word, the next step happens, and that is this. We start to see changes in our lives. Folks, you cannot learn the word of God. You can't read the word of God. You can't obey the word of God without changes taking place in your heart and in your life. You see, folks, as I become a doer of the word, God's word will change me. It'll change me.
2 Corinthians 3.18, I love this verse. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass and a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of our God. It simply says this, as we day after day pick up the mirror of the Word of God, and in the mirror of the Word of God, we see our glorious Christ. And we see Him, we get to know Him personally, we understand Him, we see what He says, and the longer and more we do that, we begin to look like Jesus. We're not the same old guy we used to be because Jesus is changing us. And then it doesn't stop there because as I'm changing and growing, God expects me to do something else and that's communicate. He changes me. He helps me to grow. Now he wants me to communicate his word with other people. Folks, there's many ways that we can communicate, but he wants us to share him with other people. And that's the last thought. Where does all this go? It goes to other people. It doesn't stop with us, but it goes on to other people. In evangelism, in edification, preaching, teaching, discipleship, Folks, we use the Word of God in our lives every day. We're sharing it with each other and we're sharing it with people we come in contact with. We're witnessing to them. We are constantly giving out the Word of God because God wants us to communicate this truth with other people. We give His Word away. So you see the process? Here's the process. It started with thoughts in the mind of God and He revealed Himself to man He put his thoughts in the human author's mind, so he inspired his word. Uh, They wrote the original manuscripts of the scripture, and God included those manuscripts or, or his thoughts immediately as the canon of scripture. He knew what it was, he chose it, and then the manuscript was collected. The 66 books were collected into one book. Man discovered what God already knew, what God had already done. Through textual criticism, they decided this one is God-breathed, this one is not. And then from there, they had the modern and Greek Greek and Hebrew translations. And those translations were translated into our languages. And then from there, we have our modern versions of Scripture And with God's illumination and through interpretation, uh, his thoughts can be understood. And then we realize that his thoughts are now part of my thinking. I can think God's thoughts after him because I'm reading the word. As I make application of his thoughts, he changes me. And then as he changes me, he wants me to share it with others. And folks, we have a ministry with other people. Why? Because we're spending time with the Word. We're growing in the Word. Could I ask you the question my mom asked me? Where did you get that? (laughs) Hey, that Bible that's on your lap this morning, where did it come from? Oh, you say, I know where it came from. It came from God. It's His Word. And He has given His words to us. 
I'm not going to ask you to return it like my mom. Anytime she said, where'd you get that? Well, take it back. I'm not going to ask you to return it, folks. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you read it? Would you learn it? Would you love it? Would you memorize it? And by all means, would you share it with other people? That's why God has given it to us. So we can share it with others. I appreciate John Wesley. 300 years ago, here's what John Wesley said. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God Himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, He came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Oh, I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book, the Word of God.